Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It was you, Kristen, who shot JR. I watched a lot of TV growing up. When I was nine, I memorized the TV guide. When my brother Lawrence told Mrs. Barnett across the street that he had a younger brother, she didn't believe him. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. That's how little I went outside. I learned early on that the television universe is divided into hour-long dramas I trusted you. God, I trusted you, you and half-hour sitcoms. Afternoon, everybody. Ah! On dramas, death is a fact of life. Consider that over the course of the six seasons of The Sopranos, 92 characters died. You shot him in his bathtub naked. No chance to run. I swear to God. It's even grislier on Game of Thrones, where characters have a 70% chance of getting killed off. The Lannisters send their regards. But today, we're talking about something far more mysterious. Something that's haunted me ever since my childhood basement-dwelling days. Something that just shouldn't happen. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, sitcom deaths and disappearances. I brought in an expert to help me investigate the phenomenon of sitcom deaths and disappearances. I'm Alan Seppenwall, chief TV critic for Rolling Stone. I've been writing about TV since the 90s when there were like five channels and now there's, you know, 500 different scripted shows on TV right now. I'm not the first person to say it, but there's too much TV. There really is, you know, and it's good to hear, like, people who are not TV critics say that. And also, the Western world's fertility rates are really low, so there's just not enough people to watch these shows. <laughs> you know, who's going to watch Longmire? I don't have time to do it. And I'm sure it's a fine show, but there's so many other things. So many. It's like when you hear about how big the universe actually is and it starts to hurt. Oh, my God. And, like, the, the Netflix interface alone, it's like you, you could spend, like, the length of a movie looking for a movie. Our topic here is sitcom Deaths and Disappearances, one of the great, sure. the great mysteries. So I actually died once on TV. It was not on a sitcom. It was on an hour-long drama on Law & Order Criminal Intent. I played a gossip columnist named T.K. Richmond. They even gave me a fedora to wear. I've never, ever watched this. I promise you, I swear, I've never seen this. And I thought I would watch it with an esteemed television critic for the first time. So, Alan, if, if you'd join me for this, here we go. Okay, let's do it. Oh, God, that hat doesn't really work <laughs> on me. 
Elliot, Elliot, calm down. There's nothing that says these pictures have to run in my column. Blackmail photos. We're in a car now. It's not a bribe. It's an opportunity. This is going to be the hot new place. This, the pictures go away, right? Right. I do have a little integrity. <gasps> Did you just blow up? The hell was that? I just blew up. Oh, do they show my charred remains? <laughs> oh, no. <gasps> oh, my hat. The hat survives, so that's good. What do you think? Did I pass as a New York Post gossip reporter? I mean, your look was very sweet smell of success. Well, thank you. I love any Tony Curtis <laughs> comparison. Okay, so lots of people die in hour-long dramas. I think actually that's right. That's the main ingredient. Somebody has to die in every Law & Order, and there have been 3,000 of them. But for someone to die or disappear on a sitcom is much different. Why? Because sitcoms, in theory, are meant to be a little bit lighter, more relatable, more relaxing. It's You're going to spend some happy time laughing at you know someone tripping over the couch or forgetting to pick up the groceries or something relatively simple. Death is not that. In other words, sitcom audiences don't want characters to die, which is why in some rare cases, the characters have just disappeared without any explanation, a syndrome given its own name. Chuck Cunningham syndrome. Sunday, Monday, happy days. There was Chuck Cunningham, the third Cunningham child on Happy Days, the eldest Cunningham child, who was in the show for two seasons and then was never heard from or mentioned again. And who was Chuck Cunningham? You said the third child, but I'm glad you corrected yourself and said the eldest because he was the first child. <laughs> Not that Howard or Marion acted like he was particularly special. I mean, he lived in the apartment above the garage before Fonzie did. He was usually, when you saw him, either carrying a basketball or eating food or possibly both. I got to go to basketball practice. He was not really a prominent part of the show. And then a couple of years in, the producers decided we don't need another Cunningham and we want Fonzie to live above the garage. And so Chuck disappeared and never came back. You're right. The basketball and the sandwich were his chief accessories. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the thing we remember from him. Chuck, I've told you not to dribble in the house. All right, Dad. Do we remember anything about him, really? Well, I think we remember that he disappeared. Yes, but when that's the most memorable thing about you, that sort of speaks to why they were willing to get rid of him in the first place. Good point. Good point. Well, do you think the fix was in for him? Did it feel like vultures were circling over him during those first two seasons? Well, I mean, he started getting less and less to do, and that was a show that was obviously going through a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes transformations over those first couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, Fonzie's a relatively minor character when you start watching the show. Because I'm the Fonzie! They wouldn't even allow him to wear the black leather jacket when he was on the motorcycle because the network feared that he looked too much like a hoodlum and the audience wouldn't want to watch that. And once they decided to beef up Fonzie's role and you have shifted it from a single cam sitcom shot on film to a multicam shot in front of an audience, bye-bye Chuck. So I talked to Henry Winkler and I asked him, did Chuck have to disappear? And here's what he said. They did not have room in the writing for the older brother because the Fonz became the older brother. Everything that you would go to the older brother for, Richie went to the Fonz for. Yeah, I mean, if you had to choose between who you were going to get advice from about girls, about cars, about being cool, about being anything, why would you not go to Arthur Fonzarelli? All right, now listen up, girls. 
One time, one time only. Line right up here, kiss the funds for a buck. Now that's a bargain at any price. Right, exactly. And so Gary Marshall, the creator of Happy Days, was obviously great at what he did. So he makes the calculation that if this character disappears, the audience will be fine with it. Something that I asked Henry about. Only years later did I ask Gary what happened, and he explained to me. And what did he say? He was the older brother, and I didn't know how to write for him, and then they to write for you, and we had to let him go, and I, it was a terrible thing. He went upstairs. He never came down. And Gary understood that the audience would accept that. Gary understood television so well, or well enough, to know that if you've got this problem and you write him out, you don't make a big deal out of getting rid of the character. It will be like um, slime. You can poke a hole in the slime, and it closes in on itself and becomes whole again. So, Alan, was Henry right about this? Mostly. Obviously, people still brought it up. They bring it up all the time, and especially whenever in the later seasons, Howard or Marion would make a reference to their two children. In the very last episode of the series, Joni and Chachi get married, and Howard makes a toast, you know, talking about all the happy days that he and Marion have had, and he says, But we've had the joy of raising two wonderful kids. And I was, you know, nerdy enough, even at that age, to say, What about Chuck? I mean, harsh. Henry told me he gets asked all the time about Chuck's fate. Oh, a million times. Hey, what happened to Chuck? Nobody is really interested, and they just love the question, you know? I, I'm so sorry, but it's true. Yeah, no, no one actually cares about Chuck. It's literally just the fact that they pretended he didn't exist. I think if they'd said Chuck moved away, Chuck goes to Seattle. Exactly. He could have just become an offstage character that they refer to occasionally. Yeah, I mean, you know, not all families are so tight-knit that they're always around and always in each other's business. You know, even if Chuck didn't have a falling out, maybe he just had a full life of his own far, far away from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So for Fonzie to live, Chuck had to die. Yes, the sitcom universe is even harsher than the law and order criminal intent universe. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, because he's not even dead. He's, he's no longer in this reality. It's sad. Well, Alan, as I'm sure you know, the internet is replete with theories about what happened to Chuck. So, of course, I had to run some of these by Henry. Confirm or deny some yes. of these widely circulated theories Go. among fans about what happened to Chuck Cunningham. Go. One, he died in Vietnam. No. Still in his bedroom. Yes. This is a serious one. Was gay and disowned by his family because it was the 1950s? Ooh. No, I don't think he would have been disowned by the Cunninghams. I think that um, Mrs. C for sure would have embraced him. Would Mr. C really been okay with that? Mr. C was very busy with hammers. Remember, he right. owned a, a hardware store that was, like, always on the brink. Right, right. Oh, okay. So he was otherwise occupied. Yeah. So Mrs. C would have handled yeah. this. Okay. Gary Marshall always told people that Chuck Cunningham got a basketball scholarship in Mongolia. That sounds really right. And the sad truth is, I think we're all used to sort of pretending that someone who has existed just doesn't exist anymore. Yep, yep. I have I've done that. As we go to a very dark place. But it's true. We've all had a, an older relative tell us, 
don't talk about that person. That person doesn't exist anymore. Yes, there's these family feuds, and suddenly we don't talk about this aunt anymore. Yeah, I mean, Chuck could have done something really awful. The, the Cunninghams are a very decent, you know, apple pie kind of family. Chuck could have been a deviant. Oh, by the way, that last episode of Joni and Chachi getting married, that led to the spinoff. No, no, no. The spinoff was in the middle of the show. Was it really? Yes, they left Happy Days for like maybe half a year, maybe more, to go do Joni Loves Chachi, which is the worst theme song in the history of television. Right. I actually like Joni Loves Chachi. I always thought there, it would be fun if there was yet another spinoff where Joni moves to the shore and opens a little store where she sells knickknacks and baubles, and it would be called... Joni Loves Tchotchkes. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so glad Mo. that you got it. Mo. I love that you got it. No one ever gets it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and now we take a moment to remember another dearly departed sitcom character... Judy Winslow, who spent four seasons on the 1990s hit sitcom Family Matters. Family Matters told a story of a working-class family in Chicago with three kids. Judy was the youngest. Hi, this is Jamie Foxworth, and most people might know me as Judy Winslow from the television show Family Matters. Jamie Foxworth started playing Judy when she was just a middle schooler. Judy was the sassy little girl with a quick wit and sharp one-liners. I'm wet, I'm cold, and I'm cranky, but don't mess with me. But over time, Jamie started to notice that Judy wasn't being given as much sass to throw around. I was getting less and less screen time, and it was always like, Judy goes up to her room. <laughs> like, I would literally be down you know, in the living room with everybody else. And I would say, okay, guys. And the next thing you know, Judy's right up the steps. Just like the Fonz in Happy Days, Family Matters had found its star, a pesky next-door neighbor in suspenders and thick-rimmed glasses. Steve Urkel at your service. That's right, Urkel. His unstoppable rise would mean the sad decline of Judy Winslow. Did I do that? Yes, you did, Urkel. It was during the taping of what would be her final episode that Jamie noticed people acting strangely. I do remember just the cast just coming up to me and, like, giving me so much love and hugs and affection. And I was like, what's going on here, you guys? Like, why is everybody acting so weird? She remembers that Reginald Bell Johnson, who played her father on the show, was particularly emotional. He was literally on his knees and he was in tears. And I just remember looking at him like, dude, what is going on? On February 26, 1993, as fans well remember, Grandma Winslow got married. Judy was a flower girl. She walked down the aisle and was never seen again. To this day, everyone asks me the same question. What happened to you? How could they just leave the daughter off? And I'm like, hey, you got to ask those producers. I don't, I don't know. I think they thought that people would just forget and nobody forgot. The character of Judy was survived by her older brother and sister, her mother and father, and Urkel. 
Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, as weird as a character disappearing into the ether may be, there's another occurrence which is equally disorienting. An actor who suddenly disappears, replaced by another actor in the same role. This first famously happened on the 1960s hit fantasy sitcom Bewitched, when after five successful seasons, the show's leading man underwent a casting change giving rise to what would become known in TV lore as The Two Darrens. I caught up with Lila Garrett, who wrote for Bewitched and experienced the ripples of the Darren effect firsthand. Hi, I'm Lila Garrett, and I'm a writer and a producer and a director. Some people think of me as a legend. I don't enjoy thinking of myself that way. Well, Lila... I would say that you're a legend. I know, I know. It's a heavy burden, but I'm willing to carry it. Lila wrote for top-scripted shows like Get Smart and All in the Family and The Lucy Show at a time when women were rarely seen in a writer's room. She's got two Emmys and a Writers Guild Award to show for it. But out of the more than 30 shows she's written for, it's not hard for her to name her favorite. There is no show that I have ever done that I enjoyed more than Bewitched, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Bewitched was a big hit in the 1960s into the 1970s. It was about a young, happy couple, housewife Samantha, played by Elizabeth Montgomery, and ad executive husband Darren, originally played by Dick York. The only problem... On their honeymoon night, she tells him that there's something that she's kept secret from him. She is a witch. And rather than be excited by the possibility of having this beautiful wife who can also perform magic and do anything for him, Darren Stevens decides that he, you know, he's a man, gosh darn it, and he does not want his wife doing magic. And the eternal struggle of the show is all these magical hijinks happening in the background, much to Darren's frustration. Which means that Darren Stevens' character is essential. Yes, because he is always exasperated by what happens. Sam, where are you? Come out here and face me. You've been sticking that magic nose of yours where it doesn't belong again. Don't try to deny it. All right, I won't. Come on, Sam. Don't make me drag it out of you. Just... <laughs> Dick York was really good. Yes. I mean, he's very good. To me, he's sort of Jim Carrey good. Yes, he's very expressive, uh, very just sort of a memorable uh, vocal comic, even to an extent physical comic. He had a great face, yeah? I mean, real plastic. I would say a rubber face. Rubber? Yeah, it could go anywhere. You know, every expression of his was wonderful and clear, and in this case, funny. His responses to everything that was happening around him drove a lot of comedy on the show. Samantha, despite having the magic powers, she's the straight man on the show. He's the one having the fun because he can't believe what's going on around him. One little favor I ask you to do. And what do you do? You wiggle that beak of yours and really cause trouble. <laughs> he was spectacular. And he was a spectacular man. As great as he was in the role, Dick York had a secret. 
Well, we first noticed the problems uh, with Dick York really in the second year. Suddenly he couldn't make it for the show that we were writing. And at first it just seemed as though he may have had the flu and so on. But when it became a habit, uh, we recognized that there was a real problem there. And ultimately we found out what that problem was. York had sustained a serious back injury on the set of the 1959 Western, They Came to Cordura. Acting became harder and harder for him and then practically intolerable. Some scenes in Bewitched, he could only do sitting or lying down. He took medication to manage the pain and ultimately became dependent. Dick York started missing shows so often, the writers had to create what they called non-Darren shows. On these episodes, the writers would render Darren invisible for most of the half hour, often via witchcraft. With Darren out of the picture, they leaned on Samantha's colorful relatives to fill out the episode. There was Uncle Arthur, who was played by uh, Paul Lynn, one of the world's greatest comics. One morning, I shot a lion in my pajamas. Now, what he was doing in my pajamas... <laughs> and then there was Endora. Played by Agnes Moorhead. Durwood is already a practical joke. Who was Samantha's mischievous and kind of playfully vicious mother. But there was only so much slack the secondary characters could pick up. Eventually, Dick York was hospitalized and left the show. So Dick York was gone, but what to do about the character of Darren? She can't divorce him. The whole structure of the show is based on this marriage. So what are you going to do? They really can't get divorced because even years later when they wanted to make Mary Tyler Moore's character, Mary Richards, a divorced woman, that alone was scandalous. Yeah, and you're certainly not going to divorce a beloved couple in the middle of the show. We couldn't possibly kill off the first Darren because uh, he was part of the concept of the show. This was a love affair. And then someone who looked a lot like Dick York was cast as um, as Darren, and that was Dick Sargent. So Dick Sargent replaces Dick York, and they just acted like it was the same Darren the whole time. But let's face it, you never forget your first Darren. This one just wasn't the same, especially his connection to Samantha. Honey, you're beautiful, sweet, clever, adorable, and I love you madly. It works. Well, it doesn't work on me. But I love you. Did they lack chemistry? Elizabeth Montgomery with the second Darren with Dick Sargent? Yes. I, I had to use the word lack, but their chemistry was different. Chemistry is chemistry. With Dick Sargent, you felt as though, oh, let her use magic. Who cares? Darren the first was in much more agony and anxiety than Darren the second. Just listen to how the new Darren says his wife's name. Samantha! Now listen to Darren Classic. And Dick Sargent would have been more appropriately cast as the head of a detective agency. I mean, he's a good actor. There's nothing wrong with him. But he wasn't right for the part of Darren, and that hurt the show. So did that change what you had to do in the writer's room? Well, we've got Darren number two in less trouble because he didn't handle it as uh, as vulnerably as Darren number one did, and therefore it wasn't fun, you know? And he he became more of an observer than a participant. 
it never captured the same magic. There are, no, no one ever denied that, and it did kind of shake us all up. And once again, it was that zany cast of secondary characters to the rescue, and Dora, Uncle Arthur, help me out here, Alan. Um, Dr. Bombay, played by Bernard Fox. Uh, Alice Ghostly came in as Esmeralda. There was a lot of sort of ancillary magical characters who had to pick up the slack that Dick Sargent was leaving them. You could basically do anything except stories about the Stevens marriage because that ceased to be interesting almost immediately after Dick York left and Dick Sargent came in. These were all great satellite characters, but without that core. Yeah, you know, it's like here's a bunch of great side dishes that we now have to serve as your entree. In Sargent's first season as Darren, the show's ratings dropped from number 12 to number 24. The following season, it fell off the ratings cliff and was cancelled. This wouldn't be the first or last time a major character had had a casting change mid-run. The Darren handoff may be the most remembered mid-run casting change on a television show. But this kind of thing has happened on more than a few beloved sitcoms. I mean, the most famous one, I think, since then is Aunt Viv on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, when Janet Hubert Witten got replaced by Daphne Maxwell-Reed, and I think it was because she and Will Smith did not get along. Okay. And then with Roseanne. Yes, Roseanne, they replaced one Becky with another because Lisey Gorenson, I think, wanted to go off to college. And so Sarah Chalk came in. And after a certain point, they were rotating back and forth after Gorenson started acting again. And then on the revival, uh, Gorenson's playing Becky, but Sarah Chalk played another part. Right, and they were very witty about it back in the 90s. We're talking about the original run of Roseanne. There was even a scene, I think, where they're watching Bewitched and they're yes. commenting on the two different Darrens instead of making an inside joke, a self-referential joke. I cannot believe that they replaced that Darren. <laughs> well, I like the second Darren much better. There is something to learn from the case of the two Darrens, right, about how a show really can be affected, the whole show. Yeah, and obviously I understand no one wanted to stop the money train, but it did fundamentally transform once they had a lesser Darren come in and they had to figure things out from there. Oh, by the way, I, I remember a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where they're talking about the two Darrens and either Larry or maybe Jerry Seinfeld was actually guesting on it, said no one wants to be a second Darren. I'd forgotten you mentioned that until now. Isn't it when Larry winds up having to replace Jason Alexander uh, as George when they're making the pilot? There were two Darrens. Yeah. On Bewitched. Nobody liked that second uh, Darren. I didn't care for the second you, Darren. But you bought it. That's right. That's right. But it's true. I mean, I, I, I feel a little bit badly for the dearly departed Dick Sargent, that he's become, um, what's the word, that he's defined that now, that he's, that he's, yeah, anyway, that he represents that. Look, being the second Darren was very lucrative for Dick Sargent, you know. I'm sure he would rather be that than to have not had a primetime TV job for those final seasons of Bewitched. Well, that's a great point. That's a great point. Being a second Darren is, yeah, is, is a lot better than... Not being a Darren at all. Exa there you Thank you. Exactly. I'm, can you please embroider that on a pillow for me? <laughs> I'll work on it. For all their differences, Dick York and Dick Sargent had something in common beyond that role they played on TV. They both led exemplary post-Darren lives. In 1991, Dick Sargent, at age 61, came out 
Until his death a year later, he advocated for gay rights with his friend and TV wife, the wonderful Elizabeth Montgomery, right by his side. Dick York couldn't find much acting work after Bewitched and ended up poor living off of his pension check. All the more remarkable, then, that he and his wife Joan dedicated their remaining years to helping the homeless by collecting and handing out food, clothes, and bedding. Dick York died on February 20, 1992. Less than two years later, Dick Sargent died on July 8, 1994. Two Darrens, both pretty good eggs. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Alan, now we're transitioning to a whole other class of sitcom death. The death of a character as part of the plot, especially jarring when that character is the title character. Oh, R.I.P. Valerie. Life is such a sweet so Valerie Harper, beloved star, co-star of The Mary Tyler Moore Show, star of Rhoda, um, just beloved TV icon. In the mid to late 80s, she had a comeback, a new family sitcom called Valerie. Where she played the mom to three kids, one of them played by Jason Bateman. The husband was an airline pilot, so he wasn't around very much. And it was just, here's, you know, Valerie Harper in the next phase of her career, sitcom mom. The show ran two seasons. At the end of the second season, Valerie Harper said, hey, I would like more money. I'm not being paid enough. My name is in the title. I feel I should be compensated more. And instead, the studio said, no, we can do the show without you. The audience seems to like the kids better anyway. And so rather than pay her what she wanted, they wrote her out of the show. They killed off the character. They brought in Sandy Duncan as her husband's sister, I think, to move in as sort of the surrogate mom of the kids. The dad was around slightly more, and for a season or two, they changed the title to Valerie's Family, and then eventually... With a subtitle. Yes, Valerie's Family, colon, The Hogan's. Like, sort of like Twelfth Night, What You Will, or Rambo, First Blood, Part Two. <laughs> yes, and then within a year or so, it just became The Hogan Family, and references to their, you know, late great mother went the way of Chuck Cunningham. They completely disappeared. So it was the Hogan family, nay, Valerie's family, the Hogan's, nay, Valerie. Correct. A lot of, as they say, iterations. Why is this so funny? It's just, again, because you can do death on certain sitcoms. Certain shows are equipped for it because they have kind of a level of gravitas or because they do the death in such a ridiculous way, like when Chuckles the Clown dies on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, either way, you can sort of work death into a sitcom field but this was a very light and silly and superficial sitcom about family life and you know am i going to get my driver's license or not am i going to have a date to the dance and suddenly mom is dead because the actress had a salary dispute and it's injecting this really somber tone into the show which the show almost immediately wants to make you forget about because it's this unpleasant thing they've done where they have to get rid of valerie harper because she was too expensive and you make a good point that the form, the sitcom form, can sustain death. I mean, um, 
all in the family. Yes. Edith's death is incredibly moving. No, yeah, she's just puttering around the bar and in the house and you don't know what's going on and then you realize at the end, no, Edith's gone. It's amazing. Uh, The right show can pull it off Cheers, Frasier. Certain sitcoms are built for it. This one really wasn't and wasn't even interested in exploring it. So Sandy Duncan comes on in the third season, in the first episode of that season. They just make very passing reference to the death of Valerie in a car crash. Yes. Sandy Duncan has moved in. The dad is getting ready to go back, you know, flying airlines again. And, you know, life goes on. Oh, well, Dad, it's been six months since Mom died, and I think it's time you got back in the air. Besides, we'll be fine. Yeah, we've got Aunt Sandy. I know, I know. So they don't spend a lot of time mourning her, and the father, who was always sort of a secondary character, is going back in the sky. Michael, you'll be back in a week. It's the first time I've left the boys since Val's automobile accident. I know. You've done a terrific job. I, I just think it's time for everyone to get on with their lives. I have to say, I love towards the end of the episode, Sandy Duncan, who is fabulous. She acknowledges Valerie Harper's character, but barely. I mean, let's just say it's not exactly moving. I didn't make the decision to move here overnight. I thought long and hard about it. So then why did you? Oh, for a lot of reasons. My feelings for your father and your mother and you kids. Obligatory. But then that same season, only two episodes later, the family is rummaging through the attic when something super unsitcommy happens. Um, Dave, yeah. I can't get your lamp to work. <laughs> Mr. Wizard couldn't get that lamp to work. Come on, let's go. Oh, no. The, the lamp is sparking, and even that music is suddenly not sitcommy, right? I think, it, I think it's meant to be dramatic. Right. It's got a little Lorimar in there. Yeah. They all head downstairs to go to bed until the smell of smoke wakes Aunt Sandy up. Oh, my God! Oh, my God. What's going on? And now they're actually really having to act. Yes. And now they're safely down on the front lawn as their house burns to the ground. This is very This Is Us. After the commercial break, we're back in sitcom land. How was your day, David? It's kind of it's kind of a weird mashup, right? Yeah. Especially when you consider that they've blown off Valerie's death in the season premiere, right? And it's and they're not even doing it in the episode, sort of in the aftermath of her death. They decide, all right, well, we're gonna do, we're gonna come back at the start of the season. She's been dead six months, so we get to skip past the grief because grief is messy and awkward and not really what we do. And then a couple of episodes later. Oh, we'll burn down the attic, which will let us redesign the sets, but also give you know, Jason Bateman a chance to play some grief. Now, it may interest you to know that I have talked to both Jason Bateman and Sandy Duncan separately about the Valerie situation, and they have the same recollection, and it's the wrong recollection, about how Valerie died. Really? They burned her, burned her dead in the house, and then, uh, then they shot the episode where we discover her, and that was odd for a uh, half-hour sitcom. But, Wait, um, that she died in a house fire? Yeah, and I'll fall apart crying, and, and it was a very special two-parter, Mo. I was playing the aunt, and I moved in to take care of the kids because <laughs> I love sitcom, and they're so funny. She burned down in a house. So it was a fire that, that ended that contract. They both think that she got burned in a big old house fire. (laughs) Oh, my God. Sandy was shocked when I said, no, she had supposedly died in a car wreck. 
here's the interesting thing. You both remember the original title character of the star, Valerie, having died in a house fire. Yes. All right. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble here, but she actually died in a, in a car crash. I don't know if she was Are run you up. serious? Yep. That is, you just dig to the truth, don't you? I had no idea. I swear. Do you think actors are just learn so many lines that they forget what they do? Are we just not too bright? I don't know. <laughs> so, Sandy, here's my question. To get Valerie off the show, did they have to have her character die? Well, I think because they had established this happy home life and happy marriage, there wasn't much of another way to exit her. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't have gotten a divorce. Uh, they didn't want her lying in a hospital with some incurable disease. So I think it was swift and to the point and got over it and went on. They had to kill her instantly. Instantly. <laughs> it does seem like there's a blurrier line between comedies and dramas now so that now it's not as jarring or it can be treated in a more natural way. And also because it, it, Valerie's family, I mean, you know, by the way, when you watch about, I mean, it's just a terrible show. Sure. But, you know, Jason Bateman was adorable and had great sure. comic yeah. timing. Yeah. So that gets you eight seasons. Right. And Sandy Duncan, I mean, was terrific coming in. Yep. I mean, she did what she needed to do. Yeah, people love Sandy Duncan. I think, you know, if you were predisposed to watch that show because it was the Valerie Harper show and they were now killing off Valerie Harper, you have to bring in someone who's supremely likable to get away with it. And Sandy Duncan definitely fits that bill. I'd like to end this episode talking once again about my own TV death on Law & Order. I just want to point out that I almost actually died in that role. Really? Not because of the car crash, but because I was playing a chain-smoking gossip columnist, and because I'm a method actor, <laughs> I prepared for the role by smoking lots of filterless cigarettes, and I mean lots. Mind you, I'd smoked a couple of cigarettes in my life when I was a teenager, and that's it. So right before one of my scenes, I began throwing up, like truly projectile vomiting. And I just want to thank all these years later, I want to thank the crew of Law & Order Criminal Intent, because as I was hurling... I kept thinking all these people want to start laughing right now, and they're not laughing. And I wanted to just be able to say, like, it's okay. You can laugh because this is a ridiculous situation. So here's my question. If, you know, God forbid, you had actually fallen to your death because of the reaction for the cigarettes, who would you have wanted to play that role in your stead? <gasps> oh, my God. Well, Sandy Duncan. <laughs> Of course. Uh, come on. I mean, uh, come on. I love Peter Pan. I love Wheat Thins. I love, I love Sandy Duncan. Love her on Scooby-Doo. I love her on Scooby-Doo. So I definitely would have wanted Sandy Duncan playing me. No, that's an excellent choice. Alan Seppenwall, thank you so much. Mo, my absolute pleasure. Next time on Mobituaries, the trailblazers whose paths were somehow erased, the forgotten forerunners. 
She's really the Rosa Parks of New York. Most New Yorkers, most Americans have no idea. How much does this historical amnesia bother you? I mean, it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobit. Be sure to rate and review our podcast. You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moraka. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. For more great content and to watch my fiery death on Law & Order Criminal Intent, please go to Mobituaries.com. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Kate McAuliffe. Our team of producers also includes Gideon Evans, Megan Marcus, Megan Dietrich, and me, Mo Rocca. It was engineered by David Herman. Indispensable support from Genia Stineski, Kira Wardlow, Richard Rohrer, and special thanks to Alan Sepinwall and Dan DeZula. Our theme music was written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom obituaries couldn't live. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries the Podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries the Book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince. And this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids. What's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.